welcome to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm your host, Sarah Dickinson. Join me every other week as we get real and sometimes a bit snarky about books and reading. Sometimes I'm joined by one of my co-hosts, Catherine from Gilmore Guide to Books or Susie from Novel Visits. Other times, I talk with a bookish guest, including authors and publishing insiders who give us a behind-the-scenes peek into different corners of the book world. But always, we're bringing you great book recommendations in every single episode. Let's get rolling. I haven't talked about The Berry Pickers by Amanda Peters on The Big Show until today, but I am so happy to get to tell you about it because I loved this book. This is a surprise hit debut novel which somehow manages to be sad and heartwarming at the same time. The prologue tells us how the story ends, so the details of how we get there are what propels the story. I loved this structure. This story is about living with regret and anger, but it's also about learning how to forgive yourself. It's a quiet family story with gorgeous writing that wormed its way into my heart. So I am thrilled to welcome Amanda Peters, author of The Berry Pickers, to the podcast today. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Amanda is a writer of Mi'kmaq and Settler Ancestry. The Berry Pickers is her debut novel, as I mentioned, and is the 2023 Barnes & Noble Discover Prize winner. It was also shortlisted for the Barnes & Noble Book of the Year, the Andrew Carnegie Medal of Excellence in Fiction, and the Atwood Gibson Fiction Award from the Writers' Trust of Canada. Amanda is the winner of the 2021 Indigenous Voices Award for Unpublished Prose and a participant in the 2021 Writers Trust Rising Stars Program. She's a graduate of the Master of Fine Arts Program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe and has a certificate in creative writing from the University of Toronto. Amanda, for those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, can you give us a brief overview of The Berry Pickers without spoiling anything? Ooh, without spoiling anything. I always find this a little bit of a challenge. I know, right? Well, you sort of spoiled the entire book right at the beginning, and we're going to talk about that. (laughs) I do, and I tell people I'm not really spoiling it because it's in the very first line of the very first paragraph. But essentially, a Mi'kmaq family from Nova Scotia go berry picking in Maine every year to earn a little bit of extra money for the winter. And this particular summer, their four-year-old daughter, Ruthie, goes missing. So then the book follows Norma growing up in Maine in a rather affluent family as she struggles with her identity and not quite feeling like she belongs. And then Joe, who is the brother of the little girl who goes missing and the struggles he has throughout his life from the residual guilt of being the last person to see his little sister. And can you share your inspiration for this story? I know it involves your dad. It does, yes. So my dad and his family were Mi'kmaq berry pickers in the 1960s and the 1970s. So my grandparents would pile them all in their vehicles and take them up to Maine. And all the kids worked and they would work in the berry fields in the summer and make money to take home for school supplies and winter supplies. And so my dad thought I should write a story about the berry pickers. And I said, no, I always say this is a book that wasn't supposed to be written. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that too. (laughs) I'll wait for that one then. (laughs) Okay. And for Ruthie's disappearance in particular, did this part of the story come from some story your dad told you or research or was there any truth to that or did you make up that part of the story? That is completely made up, completely out of my own imagination. I always ask debut authors this question. I would love it if you could share your story about how you found an agent and ended up selling the berry pickers to Catapult in the United States, but Transatlantic, I believe, in Canada, right? Harper Collins in Canada. Harper Collins. Okay. 
Yeah. So Transatlantic is the agency where my agent works, Marilyn. And I think that was a little bit of luck there. A friend of mine who's been following my career since I started writing met Marilyn in Toronto and said, I know of an author you might want to look at. So I sent Marilyn a few of my pieces. She wasn't quite convinced. So I sent her Waiting for the Long Night Moon, which is a short story that won the Indigenous Voices Award in 2021. And then she said, okay, let's sign you up. And she's very patient because she waited two years for the berry pickers because I wanted to make sure that it was something I could be proud of and that it was just how I wanted it. So when I was ready, I had about seven chapters of the berry pickers ready to go. I sent them to her and she put a package together and sent it out. And HarperCollins called and said, we want it. And I was very shocked and very pleased. And then I can't remember how long it was after that, but she had sent it out internationally. And then Megan Majumder from Catapult purchased it in the spring, I think. Oh, she is your editor. Mega was. Okay. She did leave Catapult like two weeks after she signed me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So wait, we need to get into that too. Okay. For the listeners, Mega Majumder is the author of A Burning. Yes. Which you're going to talk about that book later, but a lot of my listeners did read that when it came out and I remember it coming out. And so they are familiar with that book. So that is so interesting. Okay. So she purchases your book. Yeah, for Catapult. And two weeks later, she leaves. So what happens to you now? She introduced me to Alicia, who is my current editor at Catapult. And Alicia just took over, very seamless. And then I've had nothing but amazing experiences with Catapult in the US. Yeah, That's really lucky, I think, that that happened to you. Because I have heard that sometimes if an editor leaves, the publisher ends up not publishing certain books that that editor acquired. So... Oh, my goodness. I think it can go any number of directions and I'm so glad that you got kind of got reassigned and everything worked out. Yeah, me too. I didn't know that that could happen. I think I've heard that. Uh, I'm very pleased. So you had mentioned earlier that you were a little bit resistant to writing this book, even though your dad had told you these stories, your dad really wanted you to write this book. Why were you resistant to writing this story? Well, my dad wanted me to write about the actual berry pickers, like nonfiction. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's like, you need to write about us. I was like, dad, I don't write nonfiction. I don't even know how to write nonfiction unless it's an essay. <laughs> I make things up. But he was very, very persistent. He thought this would make a great story because there are so many amazing stories from the berry fields from all types of Mi'kmaq folk. So he took me down there. We packed up the Prius in the summer of 2017. He took me down to the berry fields on like a father-daughter road trip. And he told me all the stories. He showed me where everything happened. He told me how they used to pick berries. And I asked him a bunch of questions. And while I was down there, that first line of chapter one just came to me. And I said, okay, maybe my dad is right. There is a story here. I love it. I love the family connection. I think it adds so much meaning to the book. And I didn't know that when I read the book. That was something I learned after I finished. And it even it elevated the stories even more for me. Yeah. Oh, great. The fun part is that when I did my um, launch in Maine, my dad came with me. Oh, I love it. Yeah. We drove down again, went to the same berry fields and he was there. And then once the question and answer period of the launch was over, people were really interested to talk to my dad about like the real stories. So, Oh, interesting. And so how did he respond to that? My dad's not, he's a very, very storytelling kind of guy. He'll talk to anybody. So he was just like, oh, so he loved it. Yeah. He loved it. He's like, I lo he loves to tell those stories. So he's kind of holding court up there. Yes, he was. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. I feel like your publisher should sort of bring him along always. <laughs> <laughs> I did take him to Maine and I took him to the Writers' Trust Awards in Toronto. So he came with me there too. So that was fun. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So I personally had not heard of the berry pickers prior to publication, which is sometimes unusual, but sometimes not unusual. I mean, there's many books I don't hear about before they come out, but this one, I felt like it was immediately very buzzy once it came out. And it was chosen for the Barnes & Noble Discover Pick in November. Then it went on to win Barnes & Noble's overall Discover Award for the year. It was also named one of Amazon's top 20 books of 2023. Soon after that, you got a review in the New York Times. Yeah. Did you all see this coming? You and your publisher and your agent, of course, you hope the book is going to do well. But did you see all of this coming? Absolutely not. I say I'm still in the I'm still in the pinch me process right now. Like <laughs> I did not see it coming. I didn't even think the American public would read this book. Like I didn't think I'd be assigned to the US. And when Catapult bought it, I was like, oh, that's exciting. Or maybe I'll sell a few books in the US. This is nice. And then boom, the Barnes and Noble Discovery Prize and and Amazon with Sarah's selects. And it just went kind of crazy down there. So it's very exciting. How did you find out that you had won the Barnes and Noble Prize? I didn't until they announced it at the Barnes and Noble store, flagship store. Really? So you had no advance warning? Yeah, they don't tell you. Nope. They just said, you are a finalist for this award. Do you want to come to New York? And my publisher was like, yes, we're going to go to New York. So they flew me up and my agent came to Maryland and we were at the flagship store. I think it's on the Upper East Side. I'm not that familiar with Manhattan. But yeah, we were there and uh, with the other finalists and they just said, and the winner is the Berry Pickers. And I kind of blacked out. I was like, what? (laughs) Oh, that is amazing. So who, do you remember who the other finalists were? I remember a few. I remember the books more than the the folks who wrote them. So I know that like Chain Gang All-Stars was there. Did you get to meet the other authors and talk to them or? I did. Yeah, I did. It was really nice. And uh, I was convinced I was not going to win this award because there's so many brilliant writers there. So I was just like, oh, this is a nice little trip to New York and I get to meet some nice people. And then when they said the berry pickers, I I kind of blacked out. I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) And tell me, this is like a very numbers question, but what was the initial print run for the berry pickers? I think it was 30,000 for the U.S. Okay. That's not an insane number for a debut novel, but that's solid. Yeah. And I'm asking you this because when I tried to buy the berry pickers, my hard copy, I read it on my Kindle first, which is how I read all my books. But I then bought a hard copy because I wanted to have it on my shelves and I wanted to photograph it for Instagram and I couldn't get one. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, oh, they must have totally exceeded their initial print run for this. I think so. As soon as I won the Barnes & Noble Award, they did go out to print again. Yes. So I know that there were more, but I'm not really sure how many. But that's crazy that you couldn't get one. What has the past couple months been like for you since all of this has happened? Like, what does your life look like? It was a bit overwhelming, but in an exciting way. So there was a lot of travel because I hit like all the literary festivals here in Canada. And then I was in New York. I went to Cambridge, Boston area. I did the Cambridge Public Library, which was really fun. I was in Niagara Falls. I was in New York. And then I already had a planned trip to London, UK with my nephew. So that was just before Christmas and so many podcasts and interviews. I was like, where did this come from? This is absolutely insane. (laughs) Have you enjoyed it or do you enjoy more like the quiet writing process? 
I have enjoyed it. Like I said, it was a little overwhelming just because there was so much just trying to keep track of where I had to be and what I had to do and all the homework from my <laughs> from my publishers. So it was a little overwhelming, but I do like it. But I am a very quiet, introverted person. Like I live in my house with just me and a cat and a dog and it's very quiet. So it was always nice to just get home and like snuggle with the animals and just be still for a while. I totally understand. I am an introvert as well. And I always wonder about authors. I I mean, I might be totally generalizing here, but I feel like many authors are introverted. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then the skill sets and sort of the experience that go into writing a book could not be more different than touring and promoting a book. Yeah, very different. <laughs> and sort of the level of energy sapping that's going on. And I, I just wonder how it affects you all. I had to recharge a lot. So it was nice to just like after an event to go back to the hotel and just have a glass of wine or a cup of chamomile tea and just relax. And I generally would sleep quite well those nights because I would just be exhausted because being on is hard for introverts. So absolutely. I understand. So it was like exhausting in a way that I'd hadn't experienced before, but in a good positive way as well, because I got to talk to people who had read my book, which is so crazy. And people had so many good questions and it was just, it was really fun. What is a question that has really stuck in your mind that you heard on book tour that, that you were just delighted to hear? They always ask me what inspired it. And I love telling that story because my dad's super proud. So I really love telling that story about how it inspired. It's kind of weird. There's some weird questions that sometimes come up. What are some weird questions? <laughs> Uh, some weird question. Like once someone asked me about how magical realism fits into my book, does it? (laughs) I was going to say, does it? Do I not remember this? (laughs) No. So there's just some odd things and there's some tough questions. I'm like, well, I don't know how to answer that really. So, (laughs) but I'm very honest. If I don't know how to answer, I just say, I don't know how to answer that one. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's get into the book itself. I want to start out talking about how you chose to structure the story, because this is something I love in books. And I kind of call them how, not who books. Mm -hmm. You in the prologue essentially told all your readers how the story ends. The story is more about how the characters ended up there and their emotional journeys. We're not getting the answer at the end of the book. We're starting with the answer. And then the book is about how you get there. So how did you decide to do this? And was this always your plan? This was always my plan, yes. I did have a mentor when I was working on this because this was my thesis at the Institute for American Indian Arts. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was my creative thesis, the first seven or eight chapters of it. So I'd always planned to do it. Some people didn't like it. They said that I should wait and build the suspense. But I said, I'm not writing a mystery or suspense novel. I'm writing a novel about how people deal with grief and trauma and how it impacts their lives. So I'd always wanted it that way. Some people tried to convince me that maybe we should put that part at the end and not know. But I really wanted people to know and really people to become engaged with the characters and really care about them and see what happened to them afterwards. Did you have to do anything extra to sort of inject suspense into the story? I don't think I did. I, I know that my, so apparently you can literally lose the plot. <laughs> That's not just a saying. So wait, what do you mean by that? <laughs> my editor here in Canada was like, you kind of lost the plot in the middle. You have to bring it back together. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. So I, I wrote another chapter and just inserted it in to bring it all back together again. Oh, which chapter was that? Oh, I don't want to say that one. That's a mystery. Ha ha ha. Oh, well, now now I'm going to need to go back and (laughs) 
skim through those last chapters and see if I can figure it out. <laughs> and you said along the way, some people pushed back and said they wanted you to move the ending to the ending. Was this agents, publishers? How did they feel about a structure like this? I always wonder this. No, my agent was fine with it. My publisher here in Canada and Catapult, they were all good with it. It was more at the beginning stages when I was like workshopping it. Got it. Okay. Well, as a reader, I will tell you, I love books like that. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> First of all, it's a hook into the story immediately. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted. I wanted a hook so people would be like, oh, now I have to know what happens to these people. Yes. And I do find that there is a lot of suspense in figuring out how somebody ends up in a certain place even though you already know where they end up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So it's completely switching gears right here. <laughs> okay. I have read about missing Indigenous women and girls, fiction, nonfiction, and the ways that law enforcement really fails them and underserves them. Yep. Can you talk about how this played into Ruthie's story? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't intend this to be like a thematic work on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But I think by nature of just being an Indigenous woman and working in Indigenous community for 13 years and talking to people who've experienced this, it just naturally is what I would write about. So it is here in Canada and I know down in the States, but I'm more familiar with the Canadian situation. There's over, and since like 1980s, there's been over, well, it depends on who you ask, thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women who nobody has looked for in terms of law enforcement. Their families have, of course, and their communities have, but law enforcement just did not feel that it was worth their time. So I'm like, well, when a little brown child goes missing, people don't care, especially in 1964 when this happened, right? And even today, if a little brown child goes missing, it's, it's, it really doesn't make the news as much as a non-Indigenous child. So it kind of sheds a light on that. And I, I don't know if I intended to do that because ultimately I just wanted to tell a good story. But when I get an email from a reader who says, I'm paying more attention now to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, I feel like I have done something right. Absolutely. People need to be paying attention to this. They need to be angry about this and they need to understand that it's a real issue. And I think you did it in a way that really touches readers. When I'm reading a story that involves an issue like this, I mean, there's a lot of different issues out there, right? If an author is leading with the issue, like... I want to write a book about this issue and I'm, I'm starting there. I can feel it in the story. Right. I love it when authors do what you did is lead with the characters, lead with the story. And then it just feels like an organic part of these people's lives. And it kind of touches you differently. I feel like. Yeah, I think it is organic. Like I said, just as, by nature of being who I am and living in the time I live in and the place I live in and doing the work that I've done. I haven't worked directly with missing and murdered Indigenous women, although my family members have, but I've sat with residential school survivors and listened to their stories. And I've, I know of, of girls who've gone missing and friends of cousins and brothers and sisters of friends. So yeah, it's just by nature of who I am, where I live and the time I live in, that this would be something that would probably naturally come out in my writing. Absolutely. Were any members of your family in the residential schools? No, they were part of the 60s scoop. So the 60s scoop here in Canada was when the government came in and took Indigenous children from their families and put them in white homes for foster care for reasons only known to them most of the time. They always claimed neglect but never defined it. So I come from a very large, very loving Indigenous family. Like my grandparents loved all 14 children. But yeah, some of the older ones were taken into foster care in New Brunswick, but they did come home. So that's good for us. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. But they, they came home. Yeah. 
Good. So one of the themes that resurfaced frequently in this story and jumped out at me is about a person's body feeling familiarity with or recognizing something from their past that their conscious mind does not actually remember. I've read about this a lot. I have experienced it in my own life. I've read about it in fiction and nonfiction. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon and how you decided to include it in the story? Yeah, I don't know. Again, I don't think that was a conscious decision. So, Yeah, those are the best ones though, right? It just naturally feels right. <laughs> it does. And, and she was four when she was taken, right? So no spoilers because we all know this from the beginning. But she's four years old when she's taken. So I did a little bit of research on when memories form for children, like solid memories. And they say it's about seven or eight when actual solid memories form. So their memories are able to be molded when they're four years old. So in the book, they convince her that she's, she's just having dreams, right? These are not memories, these are dreams. And even if in children who experience trauma, which being torn from your family when you're four years old is very traumatic, it's even later that memories start to form, if they form at all, right? So I just kind of went with that after the research. I was like, okay, so she's four, so her memories can be manipulated. So I don't know if it was more, I think it was just making it make sense to me. Have you read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? I have not, but I'm going to write that down right now. (laughs) It's nonfiction about trauma and trauma recovery. And it's a pretty famous book. But that book talks a lot about this, how you may not remember or you may not even know you're being triggered by something, but your body knows. And it manifests itself in different ways in different people, but you can feel a chest tightening or feel like you're going to throw up. And it's your body recognizing the trauma, even though your mind doesn't subconsciously either remember or connect the trigger you're seeing now with the trauma back then. Right. That makes sense. Okay. It's so fascinating. And I just, I, it was so present throughout this story that I was like, oh, she's got this so right. Yeah. I, and I haven't read that book. So I <laughs> just did some research on memory. But yeah, I think with Ruthie slash Norma, she does have triggers, right? She becomes a very isolated person because she just doesn't know what to do with all the information that she, her body may hold, but she, her mind does not. So interesting. Absolutely. And another theme in this story is living with trauma, but specifically living with regret and anger. And we see this with Joe, Mm -hmm. the youngest brother who was the last person to see Ruthie before she disappeared. But it's also about learning to forgive yourself. What message do you hope that readers can take away about forgiving yourself from this story? Forgiving yourself is hard. It is really hard. And you can see that it, Joe was a long time. I'm just trying to frame this without giving anything away for the book. But yeah, it, it took him a very, very long time to forgive himself. And it led him to some very destructive behavior because he could not forgive himself. So I think it's important if, if people walk away with this thinking, I need to forgive myself sooner. I did a, a bookstore interview podcast. I'm not sure. Like I, I was on Zoom with them. Sure. A couple of weeks ago, and an older gentleman said, I lost my sister when I was young, and I always felt kind of responsible, and your book helped me deal with that. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's like, how amazing is that, that, that this little story that I wrote could help somebody deal with something like that? So, um, yeah, I was just very pleased and glad I could help in my minor little way. <laughs> Absolutely. That must feel so good to hear that. Yeah, it does. And I get one or two emails a week now from people saying, I really loved your book. Some of them just say, I really love your book. Other ones are like, this helped me deal with the loss of my sister. I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel, I feel honored and humbled. Yeah. 
So what's next for you? Are you working on a new book at this point? I have a collection of short stories coming out next year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In Canada, it comes out in August. And in the US, it comes out this time next year, next January. Oh, that's exciting. Good to know. Yeah. It's called uh, Waiting for the Long Night Moon. It's a collection of short fiction I actually wrote before the Berry Pickers, which is funny. <laughs> so they're, they're older stories, but yeah, they're coming out next year. And then I am working on a new manuscript, but with all the promotion and a, and a job, it hasn't really progressed very far, but I'm hoping this summer I get lots of time to write on it. I bet. Talking to all the authors that I do talk to, many of them do not seem to be able to write during promotion and like launch time. And I totally understand. Like I would never be able to do both of those things at the same time, I don't think. No, it's it's just too much. And my creative mind needs quiet and peace. And then the airplanes and hotel rooms and receptions don't really <laughs> lead to quiet and peace. So. Nope, they do not. And when you do get the quiet and peace after, you need to rest the brain. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I actually booked myself an Airbnb here in Nova Scotia on the South Shore with an ocean view of the Atlantic Ocean for a weekend in March where I'm just going to sit in the quiet away from my house so I don't do laundry and just get away and do some writing with a beautiful view. So I'm looking forward to that. That sounds absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. There's a hot tub too. So yeah. Oh, even lovelier. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to your book recommendations. As usual, Amanda is going to share two old books she loves, two new books she loves, and one upcoming release she's excited about. And Amanda, you are bringing some Canadian authors today. You're bringing some Indigenous authors today. Yeah, I get asked these questions a lot. So I always try to mix it up to make sure, because I have so many books I love. Yeah. And so many books I want to recommend to everybody. So I'm like, okay, which ones do I pick today? So I have fun with it, but I also feel like, oh my goodness, it's such a daunting thing when you're a reader. <laughs> it is hard to choose. It's like somebody asking you the question, what is your favorite book of all time? I'm like, well, I cannot answer that. That is insane. <laughs> that is an insane question to ask a reader, right? It's so unfair. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. All right. Tell me about the first old book you loved. The old book I love, um, The Burning by Megan Magender. She did sign me to Catapult and I hadn't heard of her book until uh, that time. And then I read it and I was like, how have I not heard of this remarkable work, right? I don't know. It just got me. And at the end, I was like, no, this is not how this ends. I'm like, yes, this is how this ends, right? Again, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I just found it a really engaging and it's so well written and I just loved it. This was a read with Jenna Pick back when it came out. It was a pretty celebrated debut. I have not read this one, but I've heard lots of good things about it. It is so good. You should definitely read it. (laughs) All right. That was A Burning by Mega Majumder. Yep. Tell us about the second old book you loved. Okay. So The Underpainter by Jane Urquhart. And Jane Urquhart is probably my favorite Canadian writer of all time. I got to meet her back in November. So that was so crazy because I'm still a fangirl about writers I love. And The Underpainter is just... It's just a brilliant story about people living in the wilderness in Canada in the post-war World War One era and about art and love and isolation. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And it's the book I always go to. I must have read it like three or four times full through. But when I'm feeling like I need inspiration or I just really don't know what to read, I just pick it up and I know it's always going to be satisfying, even though I've read it multiple times. And it sounds like there's a very cool structure in this book, too. The main character is an artist and is painting a series of important people from his life. So each painting represents one important person. Such a nice way to look at a life. 
Yeah. And, and he, he's older now and he's going back and, and it tells the stories of these people in the immediate post-war one period in Canada. And of course, because it's Canadian, it has to be a little bit about wilderness, right? Um, so it's about it's about art and isolation and love. And yeah, it's just absolutely beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And I saw on Goodreads that there's a big ending. There was lots of discussion about the ending without telling us what the ending was. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to read it. It's just so beautiful. I highly recommend it. All right. That was The Underpainter by Jane Urquhart. Tell us about the first new book you love. So the first new book I love, I'll talk about truth telling first. I don't know if it's published in the States. I hope it is. It is. Yes, I checked. It is. Okay. It's by Michelle Good, who wrote Five Little Indians, which has been like a number one bestseller in Canada for years now. But it's nonfiction, truth telling. And it's a collection of discussions about Indigenous life in Canada in the current time period. And I think a lot of it could be relevant for the U.S. as well. So there's even essays on being an Indigenous writer. She writes about that. Ah, I love that. Yeah. So there's just these discussions. She was working on a fiction book. And she just knew that it was the right time in Canada to have these discussions. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really brilliant nonfiction collection. It's very small. You can read it in a day, but you just walk away thinking, I learned so much from this. And it was just, and it's so well written, right? She's a fiction writer writing nonfiction. She's also a lawyer. So that helps. Oh, I have a huge thing about lawyers writing fiction. They do a great (laughs) job. Something about the two careers mesh beautifully. Yes. So both of her books are absolutely brilliant, but this one's nonfiction, but I highly recommend if you're looking at an Indigenous person talking about Indigenous life in this time period now. I saw on Goodreads for this, lots of the words, this should be required reading. Yes, I agree. It should be required reading, especially I work at a university, so it should be required reading, I think, because it just, it tells these stories in such an engaging way So it doesn't feel like you're reading like plain, boring, not that nonfiction is boring. I love nonfiction, but sometimes it can be luxury. This is not the way it is. Yeah. It's a mix of personal stories in with the history. Yes, exactly. Which I love that combination as well. Yeah. So highly recommend Truth Telling. That's Truth Telling by Michelle Good. It is out in the States. I believe it came out in May of 2023 here. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Tell us about the second new book you loved. Ooh, so the second one is by Charlene Carr. She's a, also a Nova Scotia writer. And it's called We Rip the World Apart. And I was lucky enough to endorse this. I was one of my Oh, f- wonderful. Yeah, it was one of my first endorsements. And I was like, oh, I feel so lucky because it was such a brilliant read. Charlene's published in the States for her Hold My Girl. Is that down there? Yes. Yes. So this is her new one. It comes out this month. And I got to read it before everybody else. Ha, ha, ha. Feel so lucky. <laughs> and it's just a brilliant book about family and about race and about a little bit of things about guilt and motherhood. It's just really, really well written. And it's a really good story. And it's very fitting for our time. So I highly recommend it. And it's, it's something I love. Multi-generational, about three women. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's, it's just great. I highly recommend it. She lives here in Halifax, which is about an hour from where I live. So from what I could find, this is coming out in the States in October of 24. Oh, okay. It's here in January. So like in the next couple of days, I already have it on pre-order. So I'm waiting for my email to come saying, come pick it up. (laughs) I hope I'm right about that. I did some digging around. This is the best that I can deduce is that it is coming out here in 2024. It is on Amazon listed as you can get this in October of 24. So, Uh, okay. Well, if you want to come across the border, you can get it in January. 
Well, and I think also, I know Blackwell's, I, th- I know they do British books. I, I don't know if they do Canadian too. There, there's got to be ways. I'll research this and put it in the show notes, y'all. But got to be ways to get Canadian books after they've been published in Canada, but not yet here. Yeah, highly recommend. I've read it. It's so good. So good. Also, the US blurb for it recommends it for fans of Brit Bennett, who I love. Right, yes. <laughs> that was We Rip the World Apart by Charlene Carr, coming out in the US, we think in October, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and in Canada, it'll be out by the time this airs. Yes, it will be. And tell us about the upcoming release you're excited about. This is coming out in the US. It is, yes, because it's a U.S. author. So Morgan Talty, his short story collection, Lent Night of the Living Res, was very well received in the U.S., and rightly so, because it's brilliant. But he has his first novel coming out called Fire Exit. And to be truthful with you, I can't even remember the blurb. I just knew that he was coming out with a novel and (laughs) pre-ordered. So you have not read this yet, right? I have not read this yet, and I'm very excited to get my hands on it. And again, I'm waiting for that email saying, it's it's in, come get it. And I'll be really excited. So I did a little bit of research into this book, and it is about a man who watches his daughter grow up with another family across the river. So he is separated from his daughter, but he can sort of see across the river. Right. Now it's all coming back to me. Right. To her life. But then he doesn't see her for a while. So he gets really worried, and then the story goes from there. Oh, doesn't that sound intriguing and amazing? Yes. And from what I could tell... Looking this up online, it looks like there's a pretty big marketing push behind this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be getting a big push. And good. The publisher also said this is a small book that packs a big punch, which I love those kind of books. Yeah, I'm really excited. If you have, if you haven't read Night of the Living Res, his short story collection, that was like nominated for a billion awards, rightly so, because it was so good. And I just cannot wait for this. And that sounds, now that you've mentioned it, I do remember reading the blurb and I'm so excited for it. I love the title of the short story collection, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Night of the Living Res. It's great. (laughs) Very witty. I like that. Yeah. And when I did research Fire Exit, I did immediately request a galley. So y'all, it did spark interest in me. (laughs) Yay. Perfect. He also uh, blurbed my book, The Berry Pickers for the American Market. And I was so like, what? Morgan Palti blurred my book? Ah. That was Fire Exit by Morgan Talty, and that's coming out in the U.S. in June this year. I love to close out every episode with the same question for my guest, and that is, what is the last five-star book you read? Ooh, the last five-star book I read. And I knew you were going to ask that. I had it in the back of my mind, so I wrote it down because I often forget because I read so much. <laughs> okay, so my last five-star book that I read is Brown Girls. Oh, yes. It's on my TBR list. Okay. Her name is Daphne Palasi Andreas. I don't think I said that right. We will spell it correctly in the show notes. I'm not, I have not looked up that author, so I'm not sure how to pronounce it correctly. Okay. I just absolutely loved it. It was written in, in such an interesting way. And it's all about the girls growing up in Queens in Manhattan. So when I was the, in New York, I was like, can you take me to these places? Because I want to see you where they, where they were born and where they were raised and, and the lives they lived. But it's just a really, really, really brilliant book. It was shortlisted for the Carol Shields Award, which is how I knew about it. I don't know if you know about the Carol Shields Award. I don't know about that award, but I had, had definitely knew about this book. Yeah. So the Carol Shields Award was established to support women and and those who identify as women in their writing journey, because a lot of the prizes they found overwhelmingly go to men. So this is a prize only for women. It's the biggest prize. It's $150,000 American. Ooh. 
Yeah. And it was named after Carol Shields, who was an American Canadian writer. So it's open to women and women identifying in Canada and the U.S. So this book was shortlisted because I like to read those shortlists. So I read all five shortlisted and I just was blown away by this one. I absolutely loved it. And I don't want to really talk about it, but it's, it's about girls growing up in Queens and about the lives they lead. And it's just absolutely brilliant. My sometimes co-host for this show, Susie, loved that book. And that is why it's on my TBR list. Oh, it's so good. So good. I actually listened to it because I, I do like audiobooks too. Sure. And the narrator was absolutely brilliant. So, All right. That was Brown Girls. Thank you so much, Amanda. I appreciate you coming on. This has been such a great conversation. Yeah, I, I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. All right, y'all. The February Superlatives episode for patrons will air at the end of the month, and it will include Amanda's picks for categories like the best story your dad told you about the berry pickers that did not make the book, and the biggest thing that changed from early drafts of the book to the final version. If you'd like to get this bonus episode plus others, you can support the show on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And in two weeks, which is February 21st, journalist Lee Stein will be joining me to go behind the scenes of Book Talk, a place where I don't spend a lot of time, <laughs> but I'm deeply curious about. <laughs> Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And make sure to follow Sarah's Bookshelves live in your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. You can find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.